Well, good morning again, Gateway family, and I just want to say again to Sarah Grace, what I already said from the baptismal earlier, we are so thrilled at your profession of faith in Christ through baptism this morning. She's sitting down up front here. I hope some of you in the church family will stop by, give her a hug, tell her how, how excited you are for what God's doing in her life before you leave the service today. We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word or in your Bible app. As we come to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, Gateway family, as I mentioned last week, we're coming to a big transition in this book that Paul's writing to the people and to Ephesus and to us. Chapters 1 through 3 were all about our identity in Christ. Remember from the first three chapters, there was only one command in all the three chapters. In the last 16 weeks, we've only seen one command. And one command was to remember from where we had come. Well, now as we focus, into the focus has really been on God's grace and what God has done, not what we're to do. When we start chapter 4 here, the focus shifts. It now becomes commands for us. It now becomes how do we live because of this identity. If you want to think of it this way, it's the practical section of the book of Ephesians. So as we turn to the practical section of the book of Ephesians, I want to ask you a question. If you are the one who is writing this book, and you've already laid down this glorious gospel in three chapters of what, who God is and what he's done for us, and now it turns to how do you live because of it, what would you say first? If you're writing to other believers, say, here, think about all God has done for you. Now here's how you're to live because of it. Where would you start? Would you start with how to have devotions and to how to have a quiet time and spend time daily with God? Would you start with how to relate to one another in your marriages? Would you discuss your speech? Would you discuss evangelism? Where would you start if you were writing to these young believers in a very pagan city now to live out their identity. Perhaps you even remember the context of the city, and you think, okay, well, a lot of them had been former worshipers in this big temple to Artemis or Diana, and some of them had come out of occult practice. So perhaps you would start your letter talking about what to do with all the occult things you had in your house or what to do when you're invited to the temple that you know is a place of false worship. Where would you start if you were writing the practical part now of how you live out this identity in Christ? Well, none of those things are bad. Those are all good, but that none of those or where Paul starts writing. In fact, he's going to start with something very different. When he turns from who we are in Christ to how we live, he starts with the church. He starts with community, how we live together. In fact, all of these first 16 verses of chapter 4 are all about how we relate in Christian community as a church. And we're going to spend several weeks looking at these. But that raises the question, if Paul starts with the church, because it's so important, if when he turns from all this stuff about who we are in Christ and our identity to now how we live. And the first thing he says is the church. He raises the question for us before we jump in, what is the church? Because so often we think about the church, we think of the building, the campus, the programs, the things that we do like this, even the worship service. Those are all good, but that's not the church. What is the church? Well, Paul has told us what the church is. Let's take a quick step through a few verses we've seen. First, chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to put these on the screen for you so you can just see a quick glance of what is the church? Here it is, Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and particulars of the promise of, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is the church? It is a body. It's a body of people from diverse backgrounds who've come together united in the gospel. The church is the people united in the gospel. We also see in chapter 3, verse 10 as well, Paul says the church is. So through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church is the way God shows his wisdom to angels and spiritual beings who are watching on. The church is a display of the wisdom of God as people from different backgrounds unite in the gospel. But there's more. What is the church? Chapter 3, verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
The church is the place that God has chosen to show his glory. It's the place that he brings people from diverse backgrounds, makes them a family, unites them in the gospel. It's a place that he shows his glory. But perhaps the best description of the church out of all of this is what Paul told us back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's the idea of the church as a family again, that we are the household of God. We are a family. We're fellow citizens. We're together. It's the people together. But then verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it's a family, but it's a family that's built together, united together on the word of God. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure, the whole church being joined together grows into a holy temple and the Lord. So it's the people of God, a family of God that are united in the gospel, ground on the word of God that is growing as God adds people into their midst. Then in verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is the church? The church is not the building. The church is not the programs. It's not even just the Sunday service. The church is the people of God together. As God meets with them, as God grows them, as God brings great glory to himself and shows off his own wisdom as we live together. It's the people of God together. And that's where Paul's going to start. After these three glorious chapters of our identity in Christ, the first thing he talks about now, how do you live, is the church. How we live together, the people of God together. So now let's go back to that question. If you're writing the book, and you have these new believers in Ephesus who've come from all these different pagan occult backgrounds, and you're writing to them saying, okay, here's who you are in Christ. Now here's how you live, and I'm going to start talking about how you live together as the church, what are you going to tell them first? You're going to tell them how the church should be structured, what leadership model to use, what programs need to have in place, how to grow these house churches to make them quickly multiply and spread throughout Ephesus. What are you going to tell them? I want you to listen as we come to Ephesians chapter 4 and listen to what Paul tells them. The very first exhortations in this book, apart from remembering, the very first commands in this book we see here in chapter 4 in our first three verses. So listen for what Paul says to these young believers about the church. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? We're reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 this morning, and I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Ephesians 4, 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, and Father, I thank you for all we've seen in these weeks about the the glories of the gospel, the glories of your grace at work in our life. Lord, I pray now as we transition to this new section of the book of Ephesians, God, that you would let it come alive as we face these commands, God, that it would not lead us just to strive in our own strength or to just to have a white-knuckled determination, but God, it would drive us to our knees in dependence upon you. God, that you would do in us what we cannot do in ourselves, and that is to work in this holiness to help us live out who you've called us to be. So, Lord, I ask for much grace as I teach this. I ask for much grace for these precious brothers and sisters as they hear. And, Lord, as we study all this together this week and the weeks to come, let it come alive to us. Stretch us and change us for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So where does Paul begin the practical teaching in this book of Ephesians? It's about the church and our attitude towards it and our approach to it. So take just a minute. I want you to look around the room. It's okay to turn around. So look, look around the room. Everyone turn around. Look behind you. Look in front of you. Everyone see all the people here. Now, think about other Christians you know in other churches in Montgomery. Got all their faces in mind? 
Now, what is your attitude to be towards them? How are you to approach them? That is the question of the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. Everyone you just saw, all the faces you just saw, the people you're thinking about who are in other churches in town, how are we to approach them? What is our attitude to be to them? And there's one thing I want you to see from these three verses this morning. Here's the first commands, if you will, in the book of Ephesians 4. And that is we are to pursue a spirit-given love for one another. The very first thing Paul talks about is our attitude to one another, how we approach one another. The first commands of this book are about community. And what he's telling us basically is this. We are to pursue with intentionality a spirit-given love. Not a love you and I can make up in our hearts, but a spirit-God-given love for one another. This is where Paul starts because it's so important to him, because it's so important to God, and it should be so important to us as well. We are to pursue a spirit-given love for one another. Now, to understand this, I want to make sure we understand the context, just to remind you of where we are in the book, but also just to remind you as well, when Paul wrote to the people in Ephesus, there were no chapter numbers. There were no verse numbers as well. We have these kind of hard and fast distinctions. Those weren't there. You know, when he wrote this in Greek, there weren't even spaces, which makes me really grateful for translators, because the original manuscripts was just word, 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 and it was just all run together. There was not even a space or a chapter. There was nothing. So this is all a continuous flow of thought in Paul's mind. So I want you to hear this together. So go back to chapter 3, verse 20. I want us to read the last two verses we saw last week and the first verse of this week because it's one flow of thought. It's not a hard and fast chapter break. When Paul wrote this, he didn't have seven days to stop thinking about it like we all did. This is all one flow of thought here for him. So chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Don't miss the connection in the context of what we're seeing today. Paul's connecting the power of God. He's connecting the power of God to glorify himself in the church with our calling together. He's connecting the bigness of God and God's plan to bring great glory and show off his wisdom in the church to now how do you and I live together in community. He does it in two ways. He does it with his word, therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner. Everything he's about to tell us is now kind of predicated upon what he's already said in the verses before. Everything we're about to see is dependent upon understanding chapters 1 through 3 of what he's been arguing for us. There's something else here that's really easy to miss that shows how important this connection is. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice the word walk. is I urge you to walk. That just means to live a certain way. Walk is a metaphor for living a certain way. He said, I urge you to walk, to live your lives a certain way. And how are we to live, verse 1, we're to walk or we're to live in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you've been called. Worthy of the calling, worthy of what God has done, the calling of one through three, who we are in Christ. He says, now live worthy of that. Well, this word worthy is easy for us to miss, and it's not even sure it's the best translation for it because the Greek word is actually hard to translate. The Greek word here is not the Greek word we, we would think of as worthy. It's the Greek word axios, A-X-I-O-S. That's where we get the English word axiom from. He says to live a life in axiom with your calling. What is an axiom? An axiom is what happens in a math equation. So for students in school, here's our math problem for Sunday morning, right? You didn't know you could get math at church this morning, right? But think about a math equation. One plus three equals two plus two. If you add any number to one side, that no longer works. Both sides have to equal. So if you make one plus four equals, now you have to do two plus three over here. You have to add one to both sides. It has to stay an axiom. It has to stay 
equal in that. Perhaps a better analogy than even a math thing, though, is a scale. So, Taylor, put up a picture. You remember the old scales in the old days? You've probably seen these in movies and stuff. And you put something on one side and you put money on the other, and it had to balance to know how much something cost. That's the imagery that Paul's trying to convey for us here with the word worthy, with the word axios. And we don't do this in English much, but we do it some. Have you ever heard someone say, man, that man is not really worth his prey? He's not really worthy of his pay. What does that mean? That means the scale's tipped. He's not doing any work, and look at all the money he's getting for not doing any work. He's not worthy of his pay because it's out of balance. To be worthy in this sense, the axios, the axiom means that they're in balance. So what is Paul saying here? He's going back to that word, therefore. Therefore is the middle of that scale. Something has to be in balance. On one side of the scale is everything God has done for us. It's our God-given identity. So one side of the scale is who God says we are. You are holy. You are saints. You are my beloved. You have a seat at my table. I have chosen you. You are members of the household of God. You are united. All the stuff we've seen in 1 through 3 is on one side of the scale. Paul now says, live in axiom with that. Live worthy of that. Make sure now how you live the other side actually matches, is in balance with who God has already said that you are. Friends, that is grace-driven effort. That's not us trying it on the street, but that's going, okay, God, you have said I'm holy. Give me grace now to live out being holy. You have said we're united. Now give us grace to live out being united. It's the axiom. It's the balance of us now in chapter 4 through 6 of Ephesians, now living out by God's grace who he has already said that we are. There's great danger if we get any of these out of balance. If we only focus on our identity in Christ and not on how we live, we really don't understand it. Because as we saw all throughout those 60 weeks in the Gospel of John, if we really believe, it's going to change us. So if you're one who thinks, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, and I don't really care how I live, friends, you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. Because if we really are a follower of Christ, there's going to be a desire in our hearts to put that in balance between who he says we are and how we live. But friends, some of us can tip the scale the other way. We can totally lose sight of God's grace of chapters 1 through 3 and all that we are in Christ. We just try harder, try harder, try harder to please God. Try harder to keep the law, and it becomes moralism, and it's out of balance. Friends, we have to keep in balance God's grace, who he says we are, and now how by his grace we now live that out is the axiom, the balance for us. And this balance, this axiom is so important to Paul. Notice what he says in verse 1. So let's go back to chapter 4, verse 1. If you want to put that one back up on the screen. Notice how Paul describes this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, highly suggest that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling. No, he doesn't say I highly suggest. He doesn't say I recommend you consider. If if it's not too much trouble, try to live out this calling God has given you. What is the word he uses in verse 1 for us there? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. What's the next word? Urge. I urge you. I entreat you. I implore you. I plead with you. So now keep this in balance. Think about what I've told you the last three chapters. Now, I implore you, I urge you. And friends, think about an urging, how different that is than a suggestion. I might be like, hey, have we thought about painting that wall of the room? That, that's maybe a recommendation. But if the building was on fire, and I came to you, I said, get out, get out, it's on fire. That's very different. That's an urging because I know the consequences. Paul's not giving a suggestion. He's urging because it's the seriousness of what happens if that scale gets out of balance, if we are not living in a life that matches our identity of who we are in Christ. And he's saying, look at what God has done for you. Now pursue living it out by his grace. John MacArthur, who's a well-known pastor, theologian, writer, some of you are familiar, had a great quote I want you to see that really, I think, encapsulates what Paul was trying to tell us here. So Taylor, if you'll put that one up on the screen for us, I want you to see what MacArthur said about this balance, this axiom for us. He says, too many Christians are glad to have the spiritual security, blessings, and promises of the gospel. 
but have too little sense of responsibility and conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. That scale is tipped in so much of American evangelical Christianity. We want all the blessings. Oh, I don't want to go to hell. Sure, I want to go to heaven. I want God to bless me. I want God to take care of my sickness. I want God to fix all these problems. But there's no desire to obey the commands of the gospel, no desire to bring it in balance, to bring the axiom up to walk worthy of the calling. Too many Christians are glad to have the spiritual security, blessings, and promises of the gospel, but have too little sense of responsibility in conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. If you're in a life group, we're going to talk about those this week. What are we to do, friends? We are to basically become who God has already said we are. It's to rely on His grace so that we now live out who He's already pronounced us to be. And there's lots of ways in chapters 4, 5, and 6 we're going to see that done. But the first way he talks about is how we do that together. What is our attitude and our approach to one another? So how do we keep that scale balanced? In one area here, we're to pursue a spirit-given love for one another. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised that he's going to start with keeping this in balance with community. That was really what chapters 1 through 3 was all about. Chapters 1 through 3 was not about Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and us. Chapters 1 through 3 was about us together being united, us together being chosen, us together being seated at his table. 1 through 3 was all about a corporate identity, not a Jesus and me identity. So it's no surprise that the practical section of Ephesians now is going to tackle us together to start with. In fact, back, go back to chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Again, we look at you in English, and it seems like singular. He's talking about me. You know, this is you, plural. In Greek, words can be singular or plural. This is a plural you. So maybe our translators should have done it differently and said, I therefore, a prisoner for Lord, urge y'all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called. I mean, that would probably render in our culture a little bit better what he's trying to communicate here. Maybe if it was up north, I therefore, a prisoner for Lord, urge you guys to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you guys have been called. I mean, this is a corporate plural command for us of what we're to be doing together in this. And how are we to live together? How do we keep that scale in balance in the way we live together? Verse 2. How do we walk worthy? Verse 2 here. Go to chapter 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The way we keep that imbalance of our identity in Christ being lived out together in a plural group context is we show humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And can I state the obvious here? You can't do this verse 2 alone. You can't do humility, gentleness, patience, and love if you never interact with one another. This assumes that we're going to be living in community outside of just seeing each other and passing in the parking lot on a Sunday morning. Notice what he says. They kind of build. The first thing that should be the axiom, the, the reality of our life here, is we should have humility. What is humility? Humility is thinking of the greatness of God and the smallness of us. Humility is putting others above ourselves. Humility is the exact opposite of how the world operates. And if we really believe in Jesus, if we really embrace chapters 1 through 3, we will understand how unworthy we are. We'll understand the greatness of God's grace. And it will humble us to where we understand that we are the same with everyone else. There's humility. And how will this humility show? We'll go back to verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. Some of the older translations say that is meekness. But friends, if we are really humble in heart, if we want a good test for our humility, look at how we interact with each other. Do we have gentleness or meekness? To other people. What, what is gentleness or meekness? It means we're mild-spirited. It means we are, and perhaps the most important definition, it means we're self-control. Being meek, being gentle doesn't mean we're not strong. It means it's strength under control. You think of Jesus. He was gentle. He was meek, but he had tons of strength. It was strength under control. A meek person, I heard someone describe it once, as someone who's normally quiet, soothing, 
and mild-mannered. A meek person is quiet, is soothing and mild-mannered. A meek person is never avenging, never self-assertive, never vindictive, and never defensive. Are we gentle towards one another? Are we, are we defensive to one another? Or are we gentle? Are we angry to one another? Or are we gentle? Are we avenging of ourselves? Or are we gentle to one another? If we're humble, it'll show in gentleness and how we interact. And that gentleness will then show in what? Look back at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness with patience. Patience literally means to be long-tempered. Again, if we want to translate this in a modern southern way, we might be like long-fused. He's got a really long fuse there. It doesn't really get set off much by anything. That's the idea here of being patient, is we're not easily irritated. We're not easily angered. A person with patience can face negative circumstances, including challenging relationships within the church, including people who rub us wrong and people who bother us. But a patient person who has humility and gentleness that shows impatience doesn't grumble, doesn't fight, doesn't argue, isn't divisive with people who are different than them in the church. But all those attitudes of humility and gentle and patience work themselves ultimately out here in verse 2 in love. You can look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I've heard me say before, in the Greek language, there's lots of words for love. English is not very specific. We have lots of words for love. I love chocolate. I love Julia. I love kids. I love roller coasters. Like, we only have one word that can be used for all things. There's a problem with that. In the Greek, there's a lot of different types of love. The word for love here is the word for agape love. The highest possible love there is. This is the love God has for his people. This is a covenantal love, a self-sacrificial love. This is not just friendship love. This is covenantal love. And God is saying here, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bear with one another with the same type of love I bear with you. We're now to show to one another. But notice the word bear here. Bear, perhaps, would be another good way to translate it for us would be to put up with someone in some ways. Think about the reality of this. This is assuming we're imperfect people. God bears with us with a covenant of love. In the midst of all of our failures and mistakes, God shows a covenantal, unchanging, undying love to us, his people. He's saying, now, bear with one another. They're imperfect, too. They've got bumps and wrinkles, and they have trouble just like you do as well. Bear with them in love. Though there may be challenges in how you relate, show to one another this type of peaceful relationship of humility, gentleness, patience, and an agape covenantal love bearing with one another just as I do for you. But friends, that type of love that we're called to show to one another if we understand our identity in Christ is to be purposeful. It's not something we just hope happens one day. It's to be intentional. It's something we should be pursuing. That's why I said we are to pursue this type of love to one another. Look at verse 3. That's what Paul says about our attitude towards this, our attitude to one another. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager, it means to really long for something to happen. It means you're diligent to make it happen. If you're eager for something, you don't sit by and go, well, I hope that might happen one day. If you're eager, you take steps. You want to see that come to fruition and come to reality, so you're diligent about it. And God says here to us, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we are eager, that means we should be passively, or we should be actively pursuing humility. We should actively be pursuing gentleness towards one another. We should be actively pursuing patient love to one another. And notice the end result back in verse 3. If we do that, are we eager to create the unity of the Spirit? What's that word? There's not to create. We're eager to what? Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Wait, wait. If we're just maintaining it, who put it there? Here's the Sunday school answer. If we're just to maintain the unity, who put the unity there for us? God did it. God's the one who creates the unity. Our job is to maintain it. All of chapters 1 through 3 is, hey, guess what? You can't do this. You're dead in your sins. You're helpless on your own. But guess what? God can do what people cannot do. 
And God did it. Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done, we already are brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have to make that happen. If you and I are in Christ, we are already, God did it, brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are united in Christ, then we are already united. God's already given us a unity. We don't have to create it. We already are seated us together. God has given us this unity. He did what we could not do. Friends, God has done it for it, for us. Our job is to not mess it up. He's the one who's given us the unity. Our job is to not let the flesh get in the way and be like, oh, that person rubbed me wrong, and to start letting our anger well up and, get, and create division where God has given us unity. Our job is to not let the world get in and influence us with pride to think we're better than someone else because they're different than us or because they do things different than we would do. Our job is not let the world come in and shape us and create division in the church. Our, our job is to not mess up the unity by letting Satan tempt us and start division within the body. God has created the unity. Our job is to maintain it. And we maintain it, friends, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with bearing with one another in love. By God's grace, we are called to keep things in balance by pursuing this type of God-given love for one another. Well, friends, how is that possible? Because what I've just read, this idea of humility and gentleness and patient, forbearing love, sounds so different than much of American Christian churches today. It sounds so different than so much of relationships you and I have with people. And if we're honest, it sounds very different than a lot of our home lives also. This is what God has caused to. Why did, why did it get messed up if God's plan is God created and told us to maintain it? Why does it get messed up? We have to go back a book to Galatians chapter 5 to get our answer for that. As Paul wrote to the people in Galatia, listen to what he describes of what happens when our flesh gets in the way. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 19. Now the works of the flesh, now this means your sinful tendencies of your own heart. Because remember, we battle the world. We battle our own fleshly desires and we battle Satan, the enemy. So now he's talking about our flesh, our sinful desires. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's the ones we typically think about. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. But go to verse number 20. Idolatry, sorcery. Now pause here. What are some of the things that are the results of our flesh getting in the way? Enmity, that's division. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. He's just described for us what happens if we don't, by God's grace, keep our simple tendencies in check. That is what happens in our heart. Where God has created unity and called us to maintain it, if our flesh gets away, all those things are manifest. He goes on in verse 21, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because that's the life of a non-believer. We're called to be different. We're called to keep in balance who he's called us to be. You are new in Christ. Now go live it out. New in Christ, showing meekness, showing gentleness, showing patience, showing forbearing love with one another, everyone else who names the name of Christ. But we know from our own experience that doesn't happen a lot of times. How is it possible, friends? How is it possible to not go down that route? Well, Galatians 5 tells us, go back to verse number 16, and here's our hope for us. But I say, walk, there's that image for living in, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's not a might in here or a maybe. He says, if you will live by the Spirit, if you'll let the Holy Spirit fill you, control you, take control of your thoughts and your mind and your actions and your words, if the Holy Spirit's in control of you, friends, we're not going to live with those divisions, rivalries, fits of anger, and all that stuff that it was just talked about as the work of the flesh. He's going to empower us as the Spirit of God takes control of us to do what we could not do. And look at the result of that, verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what is produced? But the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is an image you can pull up Galatians 5.22 on the screen for us, Taylor. 
In verse 22, it tells us the fruit of the Spirit. What is fruit? That means it is the result of what has happened. If we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, we have fruit. We have this evidence in our life, and that's love, joy, peace. There we go again. This is what we're called to do in Ephesians here. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And if we go into verse 23, gentleness, there it is again, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Friends, what we are called to do is something we can't manufacture ourselves. Everything we've just seen in Ephesians chapter 4 of how we're to live with one another with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, is something you and I cannot manufacture in our own strength. But if we understand the gospel, if we understand that God has forgiven us and given us something we can't have, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit takes control, we can now live worthy of that calling. He can empower us to now live out an Ephesians 4 chapter, chapter type of life. Through the Holy Spirit's work in us, we can now live out who God has said we are, and we can live worthy of our calling. Because the Holy Spirit will put in our heart desires to love other believers. The Holy Spirit will put in our heart strength from God that enables us to do what our flesh can't do, to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be loving as He transforms us. Again, think back to the Gospel of John. We're not saved so we don't go to hell. We're saved so we can glorify God, and He rescues us and then transforms us. If we really have saving faith, belief in God. He will be changing us. It's receiving a radical transformation from above. And so if we really are a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit will be within us and he'll be working out in us this type of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love with one another. And that will lead to fruit in our lives, fruit in our homes, fruit in our church of unity, of peace. Friends, it is possible not because of anything in us, but because of what we saw last week. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Because the Holy Spirit is in us doing what we think we cannot do. You may think, I really can't be humble to that person. I really can't withhold my fits of anger to that person. I really can't be gentle with that person. I really can't show forbearing love with that person. God's saying, yeah, you can't, but I can. Let my spirit control you, and these things are now possible. Friends, God has called us to pursue a spirit-given love for one another. Not a love you and I can manufacture, but a spirit-given love for another. So let me ask you as we close, are you asking him to do this in your heart, in your home, with your friends, in your life group, and in Gateway, and in the churches of Montgomery? Friends, we cannot fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. We can ask God to fill us, and he will. Friends, we cannot manufacture desires in our heart for loving unity with other believers in this room, with other believers in our families, with other believers in the church of Montgomery, but God can put those desires in our heart. And if we ask him, he will. Friends, you and I cannot in our own strength produce humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But we can ask God every day to fill us with his Holy Spirit and to produce this fruit in our life. And if we ask him, he will. And friends, we cannot, by any of our human efforts, make Gateway a unified church or unify the divided churches of Montgomery. But we can ask God to do that. And God can do more than we can imagine. And by his grace, he can bring unity to a city that is so known for its division. We can ask him to bring the unity, and then we can seek by living this out to not mess it up. By God's grace, friends, we are to ask for and we are to pursue a spirit-given love for one another. Just listen now. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bring with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, do you know that type of love, forbearing love that God has for you? Have you experienced that 
yourself. If not, that's the first step. But if you have experienced that, friends, can you seek his grace to now show that to everyone else you know and to do so by asking God for it every day? This week, I want to challenge you. Would you every morning get up and ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit and to produce this type of fruit in your life? Would you think about this verse and ask God every morning, we get up, Spirit of God, fill me today, take control of my thoughts, kill my fleshly desires, and give me grace to produce this type of fruit that I might show gentleness, I might show humility, I might show patience, I might show forbearing love with one another. And then would you take it one more step further and pray each day this week, God, would you show me one thing I can do today to express that to another believer? Might be another believer in your home, might be another believer in your workplace, might be another believer in your life group, or even here at Gateway, might be another believer you meet just out and random in the community, would you ask God this week to not only be creating these desires in your heart, but also to give you practical ways to express this type of love, humility, patience, and gentleness with other believers here at Gateway and throughout the churches of Montgomery even this week. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for your word, and Lord, we're thankful now that as we have been wrestling with for all these weeks what it means to understand the gospel and what you've done for us, we're thankful now that we get to get stretched in new ways, looking at how we live lives worthy of that calling. And Lord, in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, God, I pray you give us much grace as we wrestle with these things in the weeks to come. Lord, our desire is to be found faithful as your people. And Lord, we know if it's dependent upon us, we will fall flat on our face and there's no hope. But God, you're bigger and you're stronger and your grace is sufficient for us. So God, we ask for much grace this week, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would not just seal us for the day of redemption, but would your Holy Spirit would be filling us every day for our fleshly desires get killed and the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our lives. Lord, I need that. These brothers and sisters need that. We all need that, Lord. So Holy Spirit, would you come fill each of our hearts this week? And would you produce your fruit in our lives? That our interactions in our homes, with others in the community, in our life groups, in our Sunday school class, in our Bible studies, with our friend groups, wherever it may be, between believers of other churches as well, would be interactions that are grounded in forbearing love and gentleness and patience and humility as we think more about you and think more about others and ourselves. Again, Lord, we can't do that on our own strength. I know some of us are thinking right now, like, there's no way. But God, you are able to do far more than we ask or imagine. So God, this week in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, would you do more than we think is possible right now to bring this type of markings to our life, to bring healing to broken relationships in the church and across the city? And God, would you have the glory in it? God, we know the church is here for your glory to show your wisdom. And I pray this week in my heart and the hearts of the people at Gateway, Lord, that you would show your manifold wisdom and your greatness by doing what we can't do by producing these things in our heart. Lord, give us longings to pursue a spirit-given love for one another. And would you show us this week very practical things we can do to encourage another believer, to bring unity to the body that you've already given to us that we need to experience, Lord, whatever it is, would you show us some practical things we can do this week? And we will give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?